It's good to see everyone. We're going to pick back up in the Gospel of Mark. Ugh. Again, at, at the rate that we're going, we'll be uh, rivaling how long it took Sam to get through Genesis. Uh, but uh, we're, we're going to cover more than just one chapter, at least uh, this week, and uh, make some progress. I'm excited about today's uh, passages, uh, but I'll be honest with you, it was actually, I, I wrestled a lot with, with some of this. Um, there were some things that I, I was just kind of looking at and um, trying to understand, what is God actually trying to communicate here? Like, what, what, what is he doing in our midst? Because you see Jesus uh, doing things that seemed unlawful to some, and... Uh, they're, they were wrestling with that. Um, and in a in similar fashion, I was kind of looking at some of these passages and like, what is God doing here? Uh, but uh, I am thankful that uh, I believe God uh, at least showed me a couple of things that I think is important for all of us. And, and one of those things is that um, we can actually become blind to what is before us. Okay. And I think how I, how I would like to maybe kick this off is talking a little bit about my profession. So um, I, I work in a digital design department for a, a company, and we design apps, okay? So like if you've ever you know, gotten on your Android phone or your, or your Apple iPhone, and you have one of those apps, there's, there's usually a team from that company that's, that's working on it. And one of their primary jobs is actually to solve a problem, okay? So if you've ever been maybe on like a government website <laughs> where it's kind of frustrating and you're like, this is so, like, this shouldn't be so hard. Like, why, where, what am I supposed to click on, right? So these design teams are, are oftentimes working through these problems. And what they will do is um, they find out what the problem is, and then usually they'll come up with a hypothesis of why this is a problem, and they'll come up with a solution or solutions, okay? Um, and they'll test them. But sometimes, uh, some teams that are, what I would say, a little bit more dysfunctional, um, it, maybe one person has a solution that they think is, that's the way we got to do it. Uh, sometimes that's coming from uh, the higher the higher ups in the organization. We call it the the hippo, the highest paid person uh, in the organization, might have an opinion of this is what we need to do, and so they'll implement it. Um, but there's this idea of confirmation bias, and and it's just this: we kind of we kind of see what we want to see. We all have kind of a tendency to do this. And I, th I think some, I'll, I'll just read this definition, okay, of, of confirmation bias, um, which is this. Confirmation bias is a cognitive error that occurs when people pursue or analyze information in a way that directly conforms with their existing beliefs or preconceptions. Okay, so confirmation bias will lead people to discard information that contradicts their existing beliefs, even if information is factual, Okay. So think about like when you read the news, okay? Think about, or, or even when people write the news, right? Like we know that there's bias in, in, in news, um, conservative news, um, in, in uh, left-wing left news, right? Like there, there is bias in all that, right? And, uh, and think about something like COVID, right? So, there were probably some people in here that were like big on not wearing a mask, and maybe there were some people in here that were really, like, wearing a mask was very important. And a lot of times as you're reading the news, you would see things that were basically affirming what you believed and hold to be true. And, there, and then there were others that, like, you were kind of like, ah, that's, like, that's not true. Like, that, that can't be true. That data, you can't trust that, right? So that's, like, confirmation bias at work. Um, and... And another way, I'll, I'll, I'll read this because I thought this was really uh, helpful. It's, it said this um, as well. Uh, it's the tendency to favor information that supports our beliefs while ignoring other facts and evidence. And it can destroy our ability to empathize, 
and find truth. Okay? So this is just a graph. Um, this is from Nielsen Norman Group. You don't need to know them, but pretty much uh, they've influenced probably most of the digital apps that you've experienced in your life. Uh, they were kind of the, the forerunners of user experience. But this graph's just kind of showing that like we have a belief set, and then there's, there's facts and evidence, and sometimes that overlap is, is small. And so we'll just kind of see the things that we want to see, and we won't see the things that we don't want to hear. And I think this really shows up oftentimes actually in disrupted relationships. Okay? I think we can all think about um, maybe somebody that hurt us from the past, uh, or, or, um, or maybe even, even in, in the moment, like there's, there's a relationship that somebody has that um, it's like that person can do nothing but bad in your eyes, right? It's like when they do something, uh, it's like you see it and you're like, aha, there it is again. See, like they, they always do that. We talk in superlatives, right? They always do that. Or they never, they never, ever help, right? Like we talk in these superlatives. And sometimes that can be true. Maybe somebody isn't really helping ever, <laughs> like a sibling. We might have something like that. But I think sometimes we're also only seeing half of the story through our filtered lens of what we want to see. And what we're going to look at in... Uh, Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of Mark chapter 3 is that Jesus' ministry is starting to gain momentum. Okay? He had actually uh, healed somebody that was demon-possessed in chapter 1 and told them, don't tell anybody. <laughs> like, or like, don't go like, broadcast this, right? But the guy like, disobeyed and just went, that, like, went and did that. And so all of a sudden, it's like there's all this hype around Jesus what we're going to see are that the religious leaders of that time started going in to basically uh, watch and observe and scrutinize what Jesus was doing. And this confirmation bias, why I wanted to hit on this, was that they had already came to a conclusion. And that conclusion about Jesus was that he was heretical, that he was a lawbreaker, that he was a blasphemer. And so the, the amazing miracles that we're going to look at that Jesus was doing, they weren't seeing the facts and the evidence that God was with Jesus, that, that Jesus was God. They, they, were, they were seeing what they wanted to see. Oh, like he's, 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 he's breaking this law, this, which was really just a tradition of man. And so... To them, everything that Jesus was doing was just another buildup of data, false data, that Jesus was a blasphemer, that he needed to be shut down. So that's what we're going to look at. So if you can, let's just kind of start. We're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 2, and we're going to start at the beginning. So the first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus forgives sins. You guys, this is one of my favorite passages in, in the gospel. And um, I'm going to move pretty fast. I think the saying is, you guys are already listening too slow. So i got to speed it up a little bit. But uh, we're going to go through this because we are going to cover a lot of ground. Um, so I'm going to read these pretty fast. But here we go. Okay, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway, straightway, many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. So, pretty amazing. Jesus is preaching, and it's like you can't even fit anymore. So, we were just praying for the Kaya Bible study. All right? And this is like that situation on steroids. It's just like you can't even get into here, Jesus. Okay? And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. All right. So these, these four people that were bringing in this person sick of the palsy, 
basically tore into a door, uh, tore into a roof, and like somehow dropped this person down. It was probably a slow fall, I imagine. <laughs> slow fall, okay. <laughs> Gentle fall. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but. <laughs> But, but here, here's one of the first things that I just, I just want to call out about this passage, okay? To be, pro, to be brought into the presence of Jesus, the spiritually, spiritually crippled need help from the spiritually enabled. Okay? The spiritually crippled need help from the spiritually enabled. What do I mean by that? Okay? Those that do not have the Holy Ghost in them, those that are not born again are not going to be able to come to Jesus on their own. We know that it takes God to know God. We know from 1 Corinthians 2 that we need His Spirit in order to understand His words. And you guys, we're the body of Christ now. We've been commissioned to go and tell people about the Lord. And I always, like, I'm always hesitant to say these things with, with such... Uh, adamancy because I struggle in these areas. Um, we did, you know, we prayed for a coworker um, of mine. Praise God uh, that, like, that I had that opportunity. But you guys, I'm like, for every one time that happens, I feel like there's 10 times where I missed an opportunity because I was just, like, kind of shy, didn't want to, like, you know, trouble the waters. Um, but this is, you know, evangelism is like bringing the broken to Jesus, and honestly, when I think about evangelism, a lot of times, like if, you know, if I'm seeing somebody there, like maybe I'm for a walk or something like that, and somebody's just sitting on a park bench doing nothing, right? Uh, that, like, I, I, I'm, I don't know what to say to them. It's so awkward. And I don't know if you can relate to that. Okay? These gentlemen that were carrying this guy, there were four of them, there was no reason why they should have kept going because there were so many people. How are we going to even fit this guy through the door? Okay? They should have just turned around. Oh, this must not have been God's will because that's what I typically do. Oh, it wasn't God's will for me to talk to this person, so I'm just going to maybe you know, just go the other way. But man, these guys were full of faith, and so they were going to do whatever it took even if that meant tearing into a stranger's rooftop, all right? I mean, that's just remarkable. Um, we just had a bunch of people over on Friday night, um, some, some college and young adults, and, uh, you know, just thinking about, like, the hospitality of having people over, and it's like, uh, like, please put a coaster down on the table, all right? <laughs> like, like, don't mess this up. And, yeah, somebody's, like, tearing into it. All right, so we've parked on that one enough. But... There will be barriers, okay? There will be people in the way of evangelism. There will be a hypothetical roof that it'll be easy to be like, well, I guess there's no way forward. How are you going to tear through that? What's that barrier that's in front of you? Even just the perception of others. Who do they think that they are tearing up our roof? How dare they? But they knew what it meant to get this guy in the presence of Jesus, and they were willing to take a risk. So, you know, my first question to all of us, including myself, is how will we respond to the barriers that are put before us in evangelism? And I think the other thing, just to call out, born of four. We don't always have to do it alone. Jesus sent two by two. And I'll say that um, there's power in numbers. So Bible studies... You're creating a culture. And so when you bring somebody to it, they're exposed to more than just the Word of God. They're also exposed to the beauty of the power of God in, in His body, the church, and fellowship, and love. So let's lean into these things. Let's be bold. All right, we're going to keep going. Mark 2, 5 through 8. When Jesus saw their faith, He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, Thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why, re why ye these things? Uh, why reason ye these things in your hearts? 
Okay, so this is really the, the first time that you're starting to see uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders um, start to be blind to what God is, is actually doing in their midst. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I read this in a commentary. They pointed this fact out. But they have a front row seat. They weren't like in the back of the crowd. They weren't like they're, they're like there. They got there early and they're hearing Jesus and they're just, they're like, they're reasoning in their hearts that, that he can't forgive sins. Who is he? That's blasphemy. Okay, so here's the next point. Spiritual understanding is a heart issue, not an intellectual issue. Spiritual understanding is a heart issue, not an intellectual. Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves and said unto them, Why, ye, why reason ye these things in your heart? Okay, so, so the issue that these, that these religious leaders were having that was causing spiritual blindness was faulty reasoning, and it starts in the heart. And we know from scripture that the heart can be deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9. So you guys, there might be times when you've got some spidey sense going on in your heart and it might actually be leading you astray. Okay. Now God has given us intuition. God has given us the spirit. We test things by the word of God. That's how we discern if, if they're from God or not. We test them with the word of God. Okay, Mark 2, 9 through 12. So Jesus is saying to, to, to them, Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of, palsy, of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Alright, so it'd be very easy for me to walk in, okay, to this classroom. Um, I, can't, I came from a charismatic background. Sometimes you'd see this, you know, somebody comes in or somebody's talking to you and they said, Hey, I had a dream about you last night. This is, this is what God wants to say to you, okay? And so, you know, I'm all ears. God's speaking. What did you want to say? But here we have a situation where Jesus is saying to somebody, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders are interpreting that and they're saying, well, only God can forgive sins. This is blasphemy, right? What we see in the Old Testament and also what we see in the Gospels in the New Testament is that God would confirm the message of his prophets through signs and wonders. You know, you think about Moses and the staff, right? And how will they know that, you know, you're sending me? Well, you know, throw the rod down and, and watch it turn into a snake. You know, like the, the miracles, the, the, the ten plagues. These are things that were confirming the message. Anybody could say to someone, your sins are forgiven. In fact, our modern society says that all the time. Uh, there is no sin. That's what our modern society says. You don't even need forgiveness, right? Like anybody can say that. But Jesus backed up that and showed them that this was actually something that he had the authority to do by performing a miracle, which was healing him. Okay, so what this shows us is that Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins. Spiritual healing takes precedence over physical. And God gives miracles to confirm the message of his prophets. Okay, so, so we see in this passage that Jesus heals um, somebody that's sick of the palsy um, and, and most importantly forgives sins, gets right with God. So then Jesus' ministry continues after this. Okay, so... Um, we're going to skip a couple of verses, but Jesus ends up meeting Matthew, the tax collector, also known as Levi, and actually calls him to follow him. 
Tax collectors weren't mo very popular in that in that time period in that region. But he went and to go he went to go uh, dine with them. And so we're going to pick it up in Mark fifteen, Mark two verse fifteen, and it says, and it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans, those would be the, the tax collectors and those that were in governmental types of things, politicians, yeah, thank you. Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with the publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, um, I don't know if you guys have ever had maybe a close one or a, a, like a family member um, that uh, got really sick. Maybe because they just didn't go to the doctor. Or you know, maybe something, like something progressed farther than it felt like it should have because they didn't go to the doctor in time. But that's, you know, for, for, for those that feel like they don't have sin in their life, that, that, that they're good, you know? Like they don't, there's no flesh, right? They're good. They're kind of in that situation where they're in a, they're actually dying. Uh, really, biblically, they're dead. They're spiritually dead. And the, the religious leaders of this time were feeling like, you know, we're right with God and these sinners over here. Um, these are people that are almost like untouchable. But I also want to call out, um, a lot of people will use this passage to um, justify maybe just kind of like going to a bar and uh, drinking and partying and like, hey, Jesus hung out with sinners. Okay, Jesus was with sinners, like, and I would say, yes, absolutely, Jesus was with sinners. He wasn't sinning with them, though. Um, he was actually calling them to repentance. Because notice he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, so Jesus is not lowering the bar on God's law. Jesus is not lowering the bar on what righteousness is with God. He's actually leaning into it, but he's recognizing that there are some that don't think they need help from God, and there are some that do think they need help with God, and Jesus is going to draw near to them. Okay, so, in order to find healing, you must recognize your sin condition. In order to find healing, you must recognize your sin condition. And what the Pharisees... And the scribes were, were struggling with here with self-righteousness. They thought that they were right with God. That they were all good. And what we know about God, and this is one of the things that I love about His nature, is that God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. And there's this incredible um, passage in Luke 18. It's a parable that Jesus taught that actually seems like so perfectly fit within this part of Mark. And it says this, Jesus spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Sorry, is, is that voice like too much? <laughs> um, verse 13, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. Here's where we're at. Um, sorry. But smote upon his breast, saying, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house. Justified. Sorry, guys, I can't even read it. None of us deserve the mercy of God. And it's crazy to me. that he draws near to us and that he's willing to, to dine with us wretched. It's incredible. So I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. <clears throat> so man, I just, I praise God. Uh, he draws near to the humble. And uh, what a good God we serve. So not only um, was Jesus dining with sinners, um, this might be a stretch to say that he was dining with his disciples in, in, in this next part of the passage. But the idea is that uh, the religious um, were really anchoring in this idea of fasting and, um, and, and basically withholding themselves from, from food and drink in order uh, to, uh, uh, I guess, follow um, some of the patterns that they have seen in the past. Um, but what we know from other passages in the Gospels is that they, it actually built them up what they were doing, like it puffed them up. This idea that um, they would withhold themselves from such things. So Mark chapter 2 verse 18 says this, and the disciples of John, so it wasn't just the Pharisees, okay? It, was, it wasn't just the scribes, but just notice that even the disciples of John had some questions. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and say unto him, Jesus, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the day will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into the old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. Okay. So God was doing a new thing in their midst. When Jesus showed up, and yes, they knew the law. And what we know is that nobody could fulfill the law. Nobody was fulfilling the law until Jesus came. And that Jesus was actually going to bring in a new covenant. Now, it's important when you're reading the Gospels to, to recognize that the new covenant with God did not actually start okay, until... Jesus' death on the cross, okay? Um, Hebrews talks about, like, the death of the testator, and that's a really important thing to know when you're dividing Scripture. The New Testament starts when Jesus was actually crucified. Um, but you'll also see that when we're transitioning between dispensations, or in this case, covenants, and especially with Jesus on the scene, you're going to start seeing elements of um, what God is doing through the ministry of Jesus. Okay? And so, to be in stride with God, you must not be married to the past. Okay? To be in stride with God, you must not be married to the past. And Jesus' whole point was like, you know, there's a time to pray and fast. And he uses this picture of kind of like a wedding. And it's like, 
as long as like the wedding party, like the, the bride and groom are there, it's like, you don't have to be sad, right? But there will be a time when they leave and then it's kind of like, oh, where'd they go? We missed them, right? Um, and that's, that's going to be the time and place for that. Um, so, so the third issue that the religious leaders were having um, that was keeping them from seeing all that God was doing in their midst was a, a resistance to change. Okay, some people don't like change. Maybe you guys hear rumblings about uh, a stadium moving downtown. <laughs> and maybe some of you are thinking, ugh, that's going to ruin our downtown. Traffic's going to get really busy and stuff. You know? Um, but there's always two ways to look at it. Uh, that potentially means more people coming to Kansas City that we don't have to travel to to reach. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, that's a silly example. Uh, <laughs> no. I mean, my wife and I, we're often talking about, you know, the changes in the city. And we love old Kansas City. And as our city gets bigger, you know, it's kind of like, oh, remember those old days? There's this, uh, there's this interesting passage in Ezra where God sends them back to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. Okay? And as they're laying the foundation and they get it set. Okay, so they came out of slavery. God had supernaturally sent them back. They're rebuilding the foundation of the temple. And when it's done, they start celebrating and you hear screaming. But it's the strangest thing. The old timers, the old generation that knew what the old temple was like, they were actually mourning. Because that new temple wasn't like the old one. It's not how it used to be. And the, the, the new generation that didn't know that temple, but just knew that, wow, God got us out of slavery. God's building us a temple so that we can worship him. They don't know any different. All they see is the miracle, and they're celebrating. And in, scripture says that you can't tell the difference between those that were like the sound of those that were mourning and those that were excited. And I think that just like a really great picture of showing that like, again, kind of that, like you filter things through the lens and in, in your heart, right? You filter things through this and we have to be careful about holding on to the past. And you know, the law was great. Understatement. <laughs> the law was given by God. And it was a mirror. But that mirror was showing us that no human could actually live up to it and be righteous before God. Scripture says none are righteous, no, not one, except for Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ did, and we read this in Romans 8, 2-3, was it introduced a new law, which is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I thought this was like the funniest <laughs> diagram. <laughs> so good. <laughs> But basically, it looks like a child drew an airplane. And, you know, it's, it, there's a law of gravity, okay? The law of gravity is kind of like Moses' law that was given to us, right? It's, 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 got, it's got gravity to it. It's got constraints. There's a purpose for it. And, man, it's good. If we didn't have gravity, we'd be like, floating away right now <laughs> we'd be falling slow up uh, oh, sorry Michelle <laughs> we're going to get like as much mileage out of that as possible uh, but, uh, but but gravity is a good thing okay uh, astronauts that don't like that go out and then come back like they, they don't have any strength like this resistance actually makes us stronger okay um, but there is another law, um, the law of aerodynamics, which can, can totally operate at the same time as this law of gravity and yet defy it and actually take something to a new height. And as you can see in the diagram, <laughs> there's magic. <laughs> and that is very important magic. And there's some more magic back there. <laughs> so good. So good. All right. <laughs> so, so this is, you know, and, and 
I think we have to be uh, you. We have to be patient with one another, and I think we also have to be understanding. Um, I don't know what the modern local church might look like in 15 years. Um, you know, and there's always kind of this maybe tension between what the old generation wants and the new generation. Um, I'm really thankful for this church, and I, it, it it has showed me that generations can coexist and walk in unity. Um, it's beautiful, you know? But like Peter, man, God-fearing Jew would not touch the, the food that in the law God had commanded to not eat. And when he was given a vision by God to eat the unclean animals, and that being a picture of what he was doing with the Gentiles, Peter wrestled with that. He wrestled with that a lot. And then even after that, later, he kind of lapsed into like, oh, I'm not going to be with the Gentiles, you know, when I'm in Jerusalem. And so, like, I just throw that out as an example to, like, um, we need to be patient with one another and help, help each other along. When, when we're seeing God doing something, if we see somebody struggling with that change, um, remember Peter. That, remember Peter. And how can we help each other along in these things? All right, harvesting on the Sabbath. <laughs> Almost there. Okay, Mark 2, verse 23. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was a hungered? He and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also them which were with him. And he saith unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Alright. So... This is, this is my takeaway from, from this passage, is you will concede to the wrong activities if you have an improper ranking of authority in your life. Okay, You will concede to the wrong activities if you have an improper ranking of authority in your life. This was one of the passages I struggled with, and we don't have time to like um, go, go back to the Old Testament where God is first uh, in Exodus um, talking through, well, I'll just mention a little bit. God, God is talking, uh, gives a commandment about keeping the Sabbath. Okay, that's like one of the Ten Commandments. Um, but uh, it's very easy to see why the Pharisees concluded that you shouldn't go out and pick corn on the Sabbath. Um, but it's actually not in Scripture. So we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, if anybody has questions about that, I can show you the passages. But, um, you know, you know what I marveled, uh, or just like thought about as I was, th- I guess I, I marveled at this was that the Pharisees didn't go up to them and be like, Hey, I noticed that you're having to work on the Sabbath. Are you okay? I noticed you have to work on the Sabbath. Like, do you, like, instead of doing that, do you want to come over and eat with us? There, there was no care for the heart. There was no uh, question of, of just like, why are you even, like, why are you doing this? You know, you can ask why. Why are you doing this? Um, and it can be through skepticism, or it can be through, like, curiosity and empathy. And I think as a church body, we have to be careful about jumping to conclusions when we see things that might be a little outside of the boundaries of what we're comfortable with. Um, I think about Jesus giving the parable of the Samaritan that got the beat down. And the religious people, they didn't help him. Why? Because, man, they'd be on service on time. We got our ministry. We got to do. Um, uh, this is a distraction. And yet, uh, it, it was... Oh, wait, was it the Samaritan that helped? Sorry, the Samaritan didn't get the beat down. Somebody else did. But the Samaritan... Um, 
the Samaritan stopped and helped this person. And this, this, what Jesus says is that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus wasn't going to submit to... Um, or, or maybe I should say it this way. Jesus was going to care for his disciples and not break the law all at the same time. And this was a paradigm that the religious leaders could not understand. And so, really, these man-made rules became their authority. Uh, you, can, you can't travel more than a mile on the Sabbath. You can't pick up these things on the Sabbath. You can't mend clothes on the Sabbath. You can't go help this lamb that's fallen into a crack on the Sabbath, right? Like, they had started creating things that God hadn't said. God had said to keep the Sabbath but it was pretty open-ended, um, and uh, that's where we need the Lord's Spirit to lead us. So, <clears throat> we're almost done here. I'm going to... Oh, oh, Hosea 6.6, 6, okay. This is... Um, there's actually a parallel passage of this, and Jesus quotes this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. It says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. Okay, again, the, 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 the Pharisees did not say, like, hey, like, are your disciples okay? Why are, they, why are they doing this? Like, can we help? And then it says this, and the knowledge of God, God desires <laughs> the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Okay, and again, Jesus was in their midst, and they were, like, just completely pushing out the knowledge of God, Jesus Christ, and to, for the for these these man-made offerings of we're not going to pick corn, we're going to be we're going to be righteous before God because we don't pick corn. I mean, my brother's hungry, but I'm not going to pick corn, right? So you got to be careful about that. And then the last one we're going to look at the last miracle that Jesus did that the Pharisees were blind to was healing on the Sabbath. So if you can turn to Mark chapter three says this in verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. So notice that they're like, it's like whatever Jesus does, it's going to be wrong. That's that confirmation bias, right? Verse 4, And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil? To save life, like maybe feeding your hungry disciples, or to kill? But they held their peace. Verse 5, And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched, forth it, stretched it out, and his hand was restored, whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. How sad is that? That Jesus healed a man that was paralyzed, and that set them off to go destroy, like to plan and destroy Jesus. That's how spiritually blind somebody can be. That they actually see the opposite of what is truthfully happening. It's really difficult to answer God when you know your response will expose the darkness of your heart. It's said that they held their peace. I think about the times when we know our kids are guilty of something and we're asking a question, not because we don't, like, not because we need the information or the data, but it's to get them to come forth and, and actually expose their heart. And the typical response is, I don't know, right? It's kind of like holding your peace. Like, I don't know. Why did you do that? I don't know. You, you know that? You know that, right? You know that line, right? My, my response is, I don't know is not an answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's talk. Um, 
But what the, what the Pharisees were struggling with here was an issue of the heart, a hardened heart. This kind of goes back to the beginning of the chapter. They were reasoning within their heart. And now we're getting a little bit more concrete uh, uh, picture of what's actually happening. They had a hard heart. They're like Pharaoh. And John 3.19 says this, that um, this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And it's amazing in this passage, Jesus sees their heart. And not only did it make him angry, okay, it's uh, verse 5, and when he had looked round about on them with anger, uh, being grieved for the hardness of our hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. So Jesus, like, Jesus was also grieved for, for these for these, these future killers. He was grieved over the hardness of their heart. So, um, you know, these, for, I, I guess I, I would just assume that the majority um, here are saved and, and have the Holy Ghost. And, and I want to make sure that we're not reading through these passages um, without that recognition that, like, if you've been born again, God has given you spiritual eyes. You got to walk in the spirit. You can't, you can't live in the flesh. Um, but, uh, I would say this, if, if you feel like if, if God's on trial for you, like if you're kind of waiting to see what God will do to prove himself, um, or if you feel like, um, the things of God, you're kind of wait, like you're kind of waiting to see, um, if, if, if he'll prove himself, it's kind of like what we see uh, Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And he's saying like, you know, if you're God, then, then jump off the cliff because scripture talks about like angels catching you, right? Scripture does talk about that. Um, but if Jesus were to do that, he'd be submitting to Satan. And he didn't have to prove himself. Satan was cause, causing a false dilemma of Jesus never had to bow down to Satan. He he didn't have to prove himself, um, and and Jesus will not bow down to you either. Um, if if God's on trial, um, I, I would argue that you probably have a hard heart, like like these Pharisees, and and and, and it grieves God, and and God can actually soften your heart, and you can start to see the healing and the life and the light that Jesus brings to the sinner, to the cripple, to the hungry. It's all these things. So that's available. So if anybody, um, if that resonates with anybody here or, you know, online later, um, please talk to somebody um, that you know here, or you can always reach out to me. I'm Brian Bustos. Um, Let's, let's end on just, you know, if, if you're struggling with a hard heart, even as a believer, I think we can get there. You know, I mentioned like relationships being an example where it's like somebody's hurt you and then it's like, man, God might be doing something in their life, but it's like nothing's changed in your heart. And so like they're still in the wrong, even though maybe they've gotten right with God. So <clears throat> there's just a, 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 a passage that I think will be helpful um, if you ever want to read more on this, Psalm 95 and Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 would be great, great passages. But Hebrews 3, 7 through 10 says this, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation and the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me. Prove yourself, God, right? And saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So what you can learn from Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 and 4, just about getting a soft heart, how to have a soft heart. The first one is that it's a choice. It's actually a commandment. Harden not your heart. Okay. But we do need God's help with that. Um, 
We have to believe what God is saying to us, right? Psalm 95 talks about worshiping and bowing down to the Lord. And, uh, you know, the self-righteous are good. But man, when we see our sinful state before the Lord and bow down like that publican and just say, like, forgive me, a sinner. Man, that's when God will show up and draw near to you and start breathing life into your circumstances. Um, we got to be in the Word. If you're not in the Word daily, if you're not in a Bible study, if you're not, you know, like, I'm not, you don't have to do all those, like, you don't, you don't have to, I want to be careful not, that we're not piling on, you know, man-made things, but just recognizing that God has given us these tools and mechanisms, and if there's a deficiency in the Word of God in your life, um, we can help through discipleship, through Bible studies, through one-on-one, okay, uh, reading. And then um, the last one is fear God and stop sinning. When we're in sin, a lot of times we start to have a hard heart and we become spiritually blind to things. And until we confess that sin, um, God's not going to allow us to move forward uh, without dealing with that with Him. So if there's anything that, if there's sin in your heart, you know, we took communion. If God was speaking to you, sometimes it's really hard to face that sin, to confess that sin. Um, But man, even just at the end of a service, to talk to somebody about that, to share it with them, and to just ask for help. It's all we need. So let me pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for just all the ministry that you were doing um, back then. Uh, what we were reading in the Gospel of Mark, and also what you're doing in our midst. I do pray that we would have soft hearts, that we would be humble before you, and and Lord, we want to be in stride with you. Um, we, we want to um, not hold on to the traditions of men, but we want to abide in your word and abide and, um, in, in, in worship and adoration of you and, and walk in fellowship. So pray that you would bless everybody here, that we would... Um, Go out in your presence and and um, and bring the kingdom to other people in Jesus name, amen.